Hello, and welcome to Teen Scientist. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host this evening, and doing our audio engineering is Sarit Lashinsky. Here on the show, I bring you all groundbreaking stories in the STEM disciplines entirely from a youth perspective. The program features young innovators and respected experts in their fields at the local, national, and international levels. Tonight's segment will focus on the journey into the medical profession from the perspective of two extremely well-achieved and dedicated physicians. Starting off strong, we have Dr. Ranju Gupta joining us over the phone tonight. Dr. Gupta is from right here in the Lehigh Valley, working as a hematologist and medical oncologist, as well as being president-elect of the Lehigh Valley Health Network medical staff. How are you today, Dr. Gupta? I am doing very well, Uh, Reina. Thank you for having me here today. That's so great to hear, and thank you for making the time to join us on this show. So starting off with questions right away, can you walk us through your entire journey starting from the very beginning? What was it that inspired you to go into medicine, and when did you know that was the path you wanted to pursue? Sure. It's a long journey, but we'll try to make it fast. So I think from as long as I remember, when I was probably seven, eight years old, I always wanted to be a physician, a doctor. Um, my inspiration was my uh, maternal grandmother. Uh, she had lots of arthritis, and I remember myself saying that, you know, when I get older, I will be a doctor, and then I will take care of you. So that's kind of the earliest memory that I have. I think the only other career path I ever thought about was a teacher, perhaps. But as I grew, you know, my, my focus to go into medicine kind of strengthened, I remember, so so I did my uh, medical school in India. I also did what we call residency here in U.S. in India. I practiced for a year and then came to U.S. to pursue higher studies. So I started, so in India, we finished the uh, high school, the 12th grade. After that, we sit in a competition. Uh, There is a nationwide competition. There is a statewide competition just to go into medicine or engineering. Even though I had built in the exam for both engineering and medicine, I knew that I only wanted to be a doctor. So I actually did not sit in the exams for the engineering uh, entrance. We have about, um, you can think about 200 to 300,000 students sitting each year in that entrance exam. So it's really tough. You, you spend the last two, three years of your high school just preparing for the exam. Lots of pressure, to say the least. And then depending upon your ranking in that exam, and if it's a statewide or a nationwide, you would get into the medical school of your choice or maybe not your first choice. So I was very fortunate that I actually got into uh, the medical school of my choice. So my first choice was Lady Harden Medical College. That's one of the only female-only medical colleges in, in the country in India. So I was one of about 120 uh, students over there. I thoroughly enjoyed being there. And I think being that I was just amongst the best of the best uh, female physicians in my class, I think I developed a very strong personality, uh, knew, you know, what I wanted to do, you know, wanted to assert myself. And I, I think that did a lot to shape my career. So after I finished my uh, medical school, uh, in India, you can actually practice after you do your medical school. You can get a license after that, but I wanted to do some higher studies. 
So I joined another uh, very good uh, medical college in Delhi, in India, which is called Malana Azad Medical College, and I did my residency over there for three years, practiced in India during this whole time, got married to my husband, and then we decided to come to U.S. for higher studies. And so we landed in U.S. in 2000, and then I did my residency again after I gave my U.S. MLE in 2002. So I had to kind of wait for two years to complete my U.S. MLE and then start my residency. And then after I did my uh, residency, I did fellowship for three years in hematology and oncology and then came to Lehigh Valley area after I finished my fellowship in 2008, joined Lehigh Valley Hospital and have been there since that time. So if I really look at my journey, just about the education started in 1998 and started as an attending, true attending in 2008. So just about 18 years. Wow, that's quite the journey you've had. And it definitely sounds like a lot of hard work and effort, but good to see that you've come all this way. Now, what was it specifically that drew you to hematology and medical oncology as a specialty? Yeah, so I really never thought that I would be an oncologist. Uh, When I was doing my training in India, uh, we really didn't have uh, a lot of advancements that came uh, in uh, hematology and oncology in India. So I saw a couple of uh, patients during my residency, and we really didn't have a whole lot to offer them. So when I was doing my residency program at Coney Island, we had a very strong uh, hematology oncology section. So I was posted there. And what really drew me to Hemonc were two things. Number one uh, is all the new uh, advances that were happening in oncology. That was very intriguing and interesting to me. Lots of innovations were happening. I, I thought that that was the most happening uh, field in the entire medicine at least from my perspective. And the second was the compassion. I learned, uh, believe it or not, a lot from the oncology nurses. I just saw how they were so compassionate. It was almost like a family feeling. Everybody knew the patients very well. If we lost a patient, everybody kind of, you know, grieved for that family. And that whole camaraderie, that family type of of feeling uh, that uh, the nurses and the physicians had with the patient and their family members uh, really um, touched my heart, and I thought that 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 was the right field for me. My only concern at that point, I'm a kind of a very emotional type of person and do get attached to my patients, was how would I react, right, over and over. I know in oncology I would lose some patients at some point, a lot of patients from oncology, you know, stage 4 cancer patients, and how do I deal with that? And those uh, nurses in the infusion area at Coney Island really helped me sort through my feelings. And then I knew that that's what I wanted to be. And you mentioned different advancements and innovations in the field. Can you talk about those? What are some recent advancements that there have been in the treatment of these cancers? Yeah, so I started a fellowship in 2005. And, you know, the the usual chemotherapy was still what I started my career in Hemonc as. But as time grew by, we are now talking about immunotherapy. You can imagine, I'll give you an example, uh, stage four, which means a widely metastatic lung cancer, the average survival of people with stage four lung cancer was about six months. And then uh, as I was finishing up my fellowship three years, it became about a year. 
And then as I moved in as an attending, immunotherapy kind of came in where we are harnessing our own immune system to find the cancer cells. And now the survival, I don't even have a number for that. So that's number one, immunotherapy. Number two, uh, precision medicine. That means we are now trying to find what is driving a particular cancer and see if we have medications which can target those driver mutations so we can get better durability of uh, responses from those medications. It's not true for every cancer type, but we are going in the right direction. Third, right now we have uh, something called CAR-T, where again it is you know harnessing your own immune system. Uh, that has made a lot of changes and lots of exciting news in patients who have um, recurrent hematological malignancies, blood cancers, bone marrow cancers. So these are some of the the quick ones. And I'm a medical oncologist, so I give chemotherapy on my end. There's a lot happening in the surgical fields also, you know, how we can do uh, better surgeries, less surgeries, less extensive surgeries, you know, robotic surgeries, radiation treatments have also better uh, radiation machines are there. So we, we can get the same benefit by giving less radiation. Less radiation means less side effects. You know, we have better computers. We can do better imaging. So in every part of oncology, there's a whole spectrum of uh, people who are involved um, and there are lots of innovations and advances in each of those aspects. I think you definitely covered that pretty thoroughly and I appreciate that. Um, I now want to transition to talk about your work during the pandemic, specifically regarding telemedicine. Um, Can you talk about how doing virtual meetings with patients affected the way that you provided care? You know, uh, till COVID happened, we always thought that, you know, medicine is always face-to-face. Exam is integral portion of assessing a patient. You know, you ask the history, you take an exam, and then you come up with what's wrong and, uh, you know, what needs to be done. But when COVID happened, we didn't have the PPE to have a safe face-to-face visit with our patients. Everybody was scared, and, and that kind of really made us jump into uh, the the era of telemedicine very quickly. And uh, right now, and, and we did that too, though not a whole lot. So we we started doing televisits on our follow-up patients, especially some patients like I see for anemia or something where exam is a little bit less important. And if I don't do the exam each and every time, that would be okay. Uh, we still did mostly face-to-face in-person visits with people who were getting chemotherapy because we have to do a more thorough assessment of what's going on with them, and they have to come for their chemotherapy to the office anyway. But it did provide us a new way of taking care of our patients. We could be in their homes at the convenience of uh, their homes and still take care of that. So uh, lots of visits when patients are not able to come for whatever reasons we can still provide them the care. Right now, for my specialty, I would say 95% of my visits are still in-person visits, but those 4-5% of the patients where they could not come, the weather is bad, we don't have to cancel our visits, we can still do them as a a televisit, just like you you guys. But in the school now, the snow days, you, you can still have a school by going on to the Zoom. So the same way, you know, we do have a backup 
that we could do telemedicine. What really changed, and I don't think so that's going to go away, is the way we do all our conferences. So in oncology, tumor boards are extremely important. Uh, in tumor boards, we have you know people from various aspects of oncology. So we have a radiologist who looks at the imaging, a pathologist that goes over the pathology, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, our fellows, tumor registry people. All of us will discuss 8, 10, 12 cases about a particular specialty. Every day we have a, a particular tumor board to get an input from all the specialties to provide a more comprehensive care. And when COVID happened, for at least two months, we didn't have anything because we were still trying to figure out. And now we we do that through a very secure channel called WebEx, just like a Zoom, but this is more uh, in a secure um, and HIPAA-compliant platform that we use at uh, Lehigh Valley Hospital. So that is how we are doing our conferences we could be anywhere and still be connected. I think I did more conferences during and now after COVID has happened than I did before because you could do it from anywhere. I could be in my car and still attend that. Uh, lots of other international and national conferences that we could do through you know, these WebExes. So I think it taught us a new way of communicating effectively. And I think it's going to stay and that's, the, that's a big change. Absolutely. I now want to quickly touch on your vision for the medical staff and healthcare community, um, given your new role as president-elect of the LVHN medical staff. So can you talk about that for a little bit? Why did you choose to accept this role and where do you see the future of medicine going? Yeah, so I have always been uh, interested in trying uh, to improve the you know, the works behind uh, hospital administration now. I'm only a small part of just the medical staff services, which cover the uh, physicians and the clinicians per se. So we are responsible for the medical bylaws and credentialing of all the physicians at Lehigh Valley Hospital. So kind of made me learn a new thing that I was never trained as a as a medical student, as a, as a physician. So very exciting to learn something differently, which is so important because those rules and regulations are guiding us and we have to abide by them. So it's our responsibility to make sure that they are you know, up to date and modern and work for everybody. My vision for medical staff services is really, I, I, I think uh, this has been there forever, but you know, COVID made it much more prominent is the stress and the uh, burnout in the healthcare industry overall amongst the physicians, the APCs, uh, the nurses, and all of the healthcare workers in general. So I, being the president-elect for the medical staff services, is more responsible for for the physicians uh, and to some extent the APCs. And you know, we we are working very hard to see what we can do to make a much more uh, friendlier environment for the physicians. There are lots of stresses on us from the uh, insurance companies, you know, providing care, staying up to date, completing all our charting for the patients, which takes a lot of our time because there are so many rules and regulations from the insurance companies that without understanding that they do not realize how that is the biggest 
stressor in our lives as a physician, and many physicians are actually reducing their time uh, that they want to practice for just because of all the stresses. So I think from my side, trying to find that right balance between work and life would be my number one thing as as my new role uh, as the president-elect for medical staff services. There are many other things, but I think that would be the highlight of, of my vision in this role. Absolutely. Now, as we start to wrap up, I do want to ask you, what is one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners who may be interested in pursuing a career in medicine and maybe even specifically in hematology and oncology? Yeah, I think that's kind of very important. And I get that question a lot of times from, you know, young students like yourself uh, who who ask me about this question. So I, I think the way I look at it, medicine is still a field where service is at the front and center of this profession, and and that has to be kept in mind. So you should only become a physician if uh, that is something that uh, speaks to you. Uh, We have long hours, long training, many more years of training than your peers who may be doing engineering or just four years of undergraduate studies and then going into a job. So, you know, even here, I had a longer run-up because I had to do training in India and then repeat some of that training in U.S., but even otherwise, it's in 11 years, you know, sometimes you're starting at 6 a.m. in the morning and finishing at 6 p.m. in the evening. Weekends, we have to work many a weekends, uh, night shifts. So service uh, has to be at the front and center of uh, why you want to be a physician. So if that is your calling, then uh, medicine would be... uh, the right place for you. So uh, that and uh, why hematology oncology? I think that uh, hematology oncology is very interesting. It keeps you on your toes all the time because, you know, what I know today about uh, the standard of care for any type of cancer would be changed when I wake up in the morning because new drugs have gotten approved now. So you really have to be on your toes all the time. But there's a, there's a lot of pleasure. We really get to know our patients and their families, and I find great joy in doing that. So if innovation, new things, new learnings, staying on your toes is your thing, then hematology oncology is your calling. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us tonight, Dr. Gupta. It's been a pleasure to learn about you and your journey. Thank you for having me, Rena, and uh, good luck to all your future endeavors. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Gupta or Lehigh Valley Health Network, you can head to lvhn.org. Don't go anywhere just yet. After a short break, we'll be joined by Dr. Allison Jordan, a psychiatrist working at the VA Medical Center in South Carolina. I'm Raina Malhotra, and this is Teen Scientist. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100, extension 4, or wdiy.org. We couldn't be here without you. Welcome back to Teen Scientist. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, and we just finished speaking with our first guest of the evening, Dr. Ranju Gupta, who was the president-elect of the Lehigh Valley Health Network and medical staff, who also specialized in hematology and medical oncology. But now we're going to shift gears entirely in terms of medical fields and speak with psychiatrist Allison Jordan. How are you, Dr. Jordan? 
doing great. So excited to be here. And we're so glad to have you. So I'm going to dive right into questions. What was it that inspired you to go into medicine? And when did you know that was the path you wanted to go down? Yeah. So honestly, I didn't want to go into medicine. It was something that I didn't really want to do. I had major back surgery as a kid and had to be in a body cast. And my mom asked me if I wanted to be a doctor one day. And I was like, no way. Doctors are terrible. They cause pain and put people in casts. But then when I was in high school, I actually got a chance to do clinical rotations starting in my junior year of high school and got to work with some amazing nurses who were our instructors. And they saw something in me And they were the ones who said, you need to go to medical school. And I thought about other medical careers and was exposed to a ton in high school. And they kept coming back to, you need to go to medical school. You need to become a doctor. And and I just took their advice and and started on that pathway in in high school. Wow. I feel like that's kind of a unique you know, way to enter the career? Because I feel like it's usually the opposite where kids are like, I want to be a doctor. And then they see all the education and work and effort that goes ahead. And then they change their mind. So it's interesting to see someone's journey in the opposite way. But what was it that motivated you to pursue a combined residency in both internal medicine and psychiatry? And how did that entire educational structure work? Yeah, So that was also something that I experienced during medical school. And every rotation that I did, all of my attendings and all of my instructors kept saying, you need to do my specialty. You need to do my specialty. You're really good. But I liked everything, but I didn't find something that really fit for me. And so between my third and fourth years of medical school, I took a year off, did a Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship and got to work in the departments of OBGYN, pediatrics, and psychiatry, and got to work in an obstetrics psychiatry clinic for a whole year. And it was amazing. And it was during that experience that I got to be at this interface between the mental health team working with these moms and the OBGYNs and maternal fetal medicine folks. And I really liked being in between I also realized that I really was good at delivering babies, but I didn't like being at that end of the table. (laughs) I like being uh, there talking to the mom and being this go-between. So during that year of research, started researching combined residency programs and learned about MedPsych, started talking to residents that were in those programs around the country and decided that this fits, this makes sense for me, this is what I want to do. And so went through the application process. I was the first person at my medical school to ever do a combined residency in internal medicine and psychiatry. And um, I went to South Carolina and did their five-year program. And so you alternate back and forth between internal medicine and psychiatry over those five years that you are there in in the program. And you ended up being chief resident during your combined residency program. How did this role impact your medical career and having that kind of leadership position? Yeah, it was such an honor to be a chief resident in two departments that were very highly respected and still highly respected at my institution. And I really gained a deep respect for what it takes to be a leader. And it is not easy to 
lead your peers, to lead by example, and also how to interact with administration and leadership and how to advocate for yourself and what you need. And so I think that that role helped me understand, you know, leading from the front, listening to your colleagues, listening to the people that are complaining because they may have some really good ideas that can help make your program better or help you find ways to negotiate and collaborate with those in positions of power. And you've also done some research that's spanned various medical fields, including psychiatry, palliative care, and maternal fetal medicine. So can you talk about how these diverse areas have influenced your approach to patient care? Yeah, I've been very lucky to do so much research as a medical student and as a resident and as a fellow, which has been such a wonderful experience, and I've had great mentors. And through all of them, a lot of the underlying things between maternal-fetal medicine, palliative care, there's always been this kind of underlying thread of mental health and psychiatry with that work. And I think that it's really influenced my approach to patient care because I can see the whole person and how a lot of the things that we do impact their mental health and really listening to a patient, listening for their concerns. How can we create solutions that are going to be beneficial to them and not just be data for us to look at as physicians and clinicians, but how do we make this work meaningful? Absolutely. And can you now talk about how your work in hospice and palliative care settings shaped your understandings of the intersection um, between mental health and serious illnesses? Absolutely. I was so honored to work in hospice starting as a resident and going into my chief year. I worked in hospice for a year and a half and then also after I finished fellowship. And that work and the work that I did in training for palliative care and when I was a medical director of a palliative care team really showed me the impact that mental health uh, has in people that are living with serious illness. And I definitely, in my work in palliative care and hospice, leaned on and utilized my skills as a psychiatrist to help people with difficult conversations, existential crises that they were having, anticipatory grief, bereavement, loss, all of those things people that are facing a serious illness are dealing with. Uh, They are going through one of the worst experiences in their lives and Seeing that and seeing the mental toll that those serious illnesses can take on a person and their family that's going on this journey with them was very, very profound and incredibly humbling just to see how people navigate it and to be invited into that space to help them on their journey. Definitely. I can't even imagine being in that position. So I think focusing on those kind of that intersection between mental health and illnesses is so important. Um, I now want to transition to talk more about your personal life, Um, starting off with your diagnosis of stage three breast cancer in 2018. um, That definitely seemed to have a profound impact on your interests. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this entire experience influenced your pursuit of wellness and culinary medicine? Absolutely. You know, it was very um, a shock <laughs> to be doing palliative care work, working in hospice. And then with one phone call, you go from being the doctor to becoming the patient. 
and I still worked during my cancer treatment. I still saw patients and then would go off and do my own treatments and then would come back to work. Um, and so it definitely gave me a perspective of, of being the patient. I had, had done it as a child with my back surgery, but was now doing it again as an adult and as an attending that was working in, in the field. That experience of going through cancer treatment definitely showed me that taking care of myself, being an example to my colleagues and to patients about how do you live well when you're living with a serious illness. And I just tried to live it out and hopefully outlive the, the cancer diagnosis. And what I learned and my experience taught me that wellness and that the foods that I was eating and my lifestyle definitely needed to change and I needed to make modifications in what I was doing and, and, and how I could take care of myself as my body was going through the rigors of cancer treatment. And that led me down to learning about culinary medicine and how we can use food as medicine, using these culinary skills and using foods that we eat and making better choices to help me fuel my body with what it needed during the treatment and in the recovery period. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this kind of connects with the last question, but what are some of your personal interests and how have you been able to balance them with a career in medicine that can oftentimes be so demanding and time-consuming? Yeah. So my personal interest through my cancer treatment and just the profound impact it had on me, I am very much into health and fitness. And so I still love to bake. I still like to go to, you know, farmer's markets and you know, make recipes and bake and, and do all of those things. But I am still, you know, working uh, as a physician. And so what I do is I really try to say no to the things that aren't important so that I can say yes to the things that really matter to me. And I definitely have adopted the mantra that I put myself at the top of the to-do list every day and then everything else after that will fall into place. So I definitely try to take care of myself first. So I get up at 3.45 in the morning to make sure that I get my workouts done. I meal prep my meals so that way I have that all ready to go so that I can have a, a healthy, wholesome lunch between patients. And then I make sure that, you know, I'm going to bed at a good time and that way I'm getting the rest that I need so that my body can recover. And I think by doing those things and modeling this lifestyle for my patients actually makes me a better physician because I'm not just telling them what to do, but I am doing it myself and can be a resource and a guide on the side for them as they are on their health journey. 3.45 in the morning is really crazy to me. <laughs> have you always had that kind of routine? Have you always been like very, you know, rigid with how you structure your day? Or is that something that you only really adopted when you went into medicine? So quick answer is no. I have not always been like this. I was definitely the person who stayed up all night in high school studying and then would sleep in, you know, if I could. But over the course of being in medicine and, and doing these things, I've had to adapt and, you know, make time for those things that are really important to me. And it's definitely not easy to get up at 345 to get these workouts done when it is still dark. But 
I just feel so much better and I, it sets the tone for the day and I know that it's going to help me bring my best self to the work that I do with my patients. So it, it's hard, but it's worth it. Definitely. I respect that so much. <laughs> now, can you share with us a particularly inspiring or touching or memorable patient success story that stands out in your career? Um, maybe that showcases the integration of palliative care and mental health support? Yeah. So I have I have so, so many patients that I, I can think of, but I definitely have some uh, with the work that I do at my current job. And we have palliative folks that get referred to me for palliative psychiatry. And I have a person who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And he was going through his treatment. And initially when he came to me, he was just so angry and distraught over his diagnosis. And I got a chance to just talk to him about what matters to you. You know, what's really important to you right now? What are your values? And getting to know him as a person and working with him through the rigors of his treatment, his, his Parkinson's, uh, he was later diagnosed with cancer, and, you know, dealing with the shock of that diagnosis on top of his other chronic illness, and really just walking with him on the journey and seeing him evolve and it's been really an honor and that, you know, we talked about medications. We've talked just through therapy to help him get the support that he needs and just seeing him over time come through the illness, be an inspiration to others and also to collaborate with his palliative care team to help them see that, you know, attending to his needs, meeting him where he's at, digging through those uncomfortable thoughts that he has and, you know, not being scared to kind of get in the mud and help people work through it or just to sit and be present. And sometimes it's not necessary for me to try to fix it. They just need to know that I'm there, I'm with them, and I'm going to sit there with them as long as it takes until they're in a better place. Now, I want to transition on your perspective on some of the misconceptions about the fields of psychiatry as a whole, um, because one thing I've noticed, especially as a student and child of two physicians, is that oftentimes psychiatry isn't maybe taken as seriously or seen as like a legitimate medical field as compared to the others, just because it's, you know, regarding the brain and mental health and people oftentimes confuse psychiatry with psychology and you know, therapists. So can you talk about like the misconceptions that kind of follow this field and kind of address those? Yeah, I, I will do my best. <laughs> Some of the big things that I hear um, misconceptions about the field of psychiatry is that people think that all we do is prescribe medication or that we're only here to push pills. And that is part of what we do, but it is not all that we do. We in psychiatry are trained in doing therapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes it's supportive therapy. Uh, we can do a lot. Uh, we are physicians who are concerned about mental health. A lot of times when I was in my residency, I definitely heard like, oh, well, the internal medicine part, that's the real doctor part. Your psychiatry part is like the easy part. And that is can be further from the truth. Both are equally hard in their own right. And working with people that have serious mental illness, such as bipolar, schizophrenia, 
you know, helping them with their medical conditions that could come from that metabolic syndrome from these medications. That is very much real medicine. These people are having acute crises. Their brains, you know, are having acute changes that must be addressed and should not be ignored. A lot of people think that it's, you know, going to be easier, but no, I mean, we deal with suicide and loss and, you know, we hear some people that have been through a lot of traumatic events, especially over these past few years, the need and the acuity of what we are seeing in mental health right now has really, really increased. And, you know, I think that that is also helping people to see the value and the need for having good psychiatrists available for the population. Now, oftentimes people and students stray away or are intimidated by the medical field because of the commitment and length of school and time it takes to build a career. So was this ever a concern that impacted you? And how would you advise people interested in medicine to overcome these hesitations? Yeah, I think that when I started, you know, when I started my medical career, honestly, in 10th grade and in my medical science careers class and my training overall was over 16 years of training, you know, starting in high school. What I tell people is that, you know, hopefully, you know, those 16 years, you're going to be whatever age at that time. Do you want to be that age with, you know, the medical degree or do you, you know, or do you want to do something else? The time is going to pass anyway. So you have an opportunity to spend it the way that you want and, you know, not get so focused on the length of the time, but be more focused on the journey and what you're going to learn about others, what you're going to learn about yourself and what kind of person you want to be and what kind of work, what kind of career do you want to have? And however long that takes, it's what it takes. And for people that wanted to do it and then change their mind, you can change your mind. It's okay. It happens a lot in medicine and you can go back and people sometimes have second careers in medicine. And so I don't want people to be deterred or scared by the time um, because the time is what you make it. Well, I think that was a very valuable piece of advice. Now, looking ahead, what are your aspirations and goals for further advancing the fields of palliative care, um, mental health support, and psychiatry? So what I would love to see more for palliative care, mental health support, psychiatry, I would love to see more integration of psychiatry into palliative care. I am so fortunate in my job that I have my small little palliative psychiatry panel where I get to do my interface that I love so much between palliative care and psychiatry. I would love to see more of that around the country. I'd love to see more psychiatrists go into the field of palliative care to increase that mental health support and that access that people with serious illness desperately need as they are on their journey. And lastly, I want to ask, what is one piece of advice you would give to our listeners who might be interested in pursuing a career in medicine, specifically in psychiatry or palliative care? What I would say if somebody's interested in palliative care or they're interested in psychiatry or, or any field in particular, I would say mentorship. Try to find someone who 
can be a mentor and guide you along the journey because it is going to be a long journey and there's going to be bumps along the way. But finding different mentors that can support you in your different interests or give you exposure to what's out there or help you to network or give you opportunities, that would be my one piece of advice. Doing this alone is very, very hard. There is strength in numbers and having at least one mentor can be invaluable to help you get where you want to be. Definitely. I cannot agree more. Well, Dr. Jordan, it's been amazing to hear about your journey and gain some insight into your very long and very impressive career. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun and uh, so, so glad to have had the chance to talk with you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to tonight on Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.